Connor will, um, but it's still Caucasian. Yeah, there he goes. Okay. Connor will welcome back. I'm glad to see you. This is your second call, right? It is. Okay. Um, generally in the first call, uh, I give kind of an overview. And so in the uh, calls after that, they take normally two different possible uh, paths. One is that the student will have a lot of questions of course. And so we follow along with that. But if uh, the student is open to listening to how things uh, progress, then we can go in an order that has worked out itself over a long period of time. That in fact, um, this is what I'm really talking about is uh, a common phrase that said throughout the sutras. The sutras are actually quite repetitive. And one of the phrases that uh, is said throughout is, is that the teachings of the Buddha are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end with the right meaning and phrasing. Now that meaning and phrasing is the translations that the uh, uh, into English language, but what it means is, is that timing and emphasis and order of occurrence and other things like this uh, are best done because if you give uh, a student the wrong kind of information too soon, it will give him power that he doesn't know how to control. Or it will give him a re another way of saying it, it will give him a reason to stop behaving himself according to society's rules. There's also other um, issues that happen, and that is within meditation, that if somebody continues along the path of meditation, if they're not taught in the correct sequence or order, then they wind up it not being good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. It will go real bad in the middle. Um, and that uh, really bad in the middle uh, can get so bad that it is referenced in uh, modern Western Buddhist literature is stealing something from uh, middle ages of Christianity it's called the dark night of the soul. There's a phrase I've I've heard here and there before, but don't know too much about right. it. That's that's the result of incorrect practice. Mm. And that um, basically what it means is, is that the students have gotten some skills developed, but not others. Mm. And, and so um, we have to make sure that the students understand uh, that the Eightfold Noble Path is actually a package deal. Mm -hmm. And that we have to practice all of the Eightfold Noble Path and that the Buddha gave Anapanasati is as the practice. For... Uh, quick question. When you say it's a package deal, do you mean you must complete it through to the end or you must no i mean you have to develop all each and every of one of the skills si simultaneously 
No, nothing ever happens simultaneous. Okay. Not if you're fast enough. Got it. Un understood. Just just want to make sure I'm understanding correctly. No. Um, let us say that um, the the more long long term correct answer to the question that you had would be that we practice right uh, sati and right um, investigation or right viewing along then with immediately adding right effort to it. And then mm -hmm. those three run and circle around each other, developing them as a skill. And then we add the fourth one, which is Sama Sankapa or right attitude. And the now right view, right skill, right attitude, and especially right effort run and circle around each other, building mm -hmm. up a package deal. And that package deal, when a Sama Sankapa of right attitude, along with right effort, right sati, and right viewing, or right looking, or right investigation, when that happens, the mind becomes unified and whole. Mm, yeah, I, I read The Great Forty, and that seemed to be a theme that it kept coming back to the fact that right view, right effort, and right sati were sort of cyclical in nature or integrated into each other, if I understood it correctly. I actually use the words translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi, run and circle. Mm -hmm. okay, they run and circle around one another. Um, they're interrelated. <laughs> they they kept coming back to that and I, I kept thinking to myself, okay, clearly there there's something very, very important going on in this phrase. Uh, I'm not sure. I quite understand everything that they're trying to get across in this message. Right. Well, this is the message that that is what gathers up um, uh, the factors that bring about the unification of mind. Now, the unification of mind is in English language translated into concentration, but this is not the way to the word concentration. You know that the word concentration has a whole lot of different uses for different uh, definitions of it. And and that the, uh, the correct definition then of the use of the word concentration is one that nobody ever uses. Mm -hmm. we, use other, we, we think of, we can use a concentration in the sense of focus. We can use concentration in the sense of very forceful focus, or we can use the word concentrate in the sense of going down to just the essential ingredients and throwing out all the superfluous stuff, which is normally the way that we use that word when thinking of Buddhism. Um, and so really, um, in a way, we're doing exactly the opposite of concentration. When we think of it as concentration, that's what gives you the typical meditation retreat. Okay. And that people have to really work and really focus, really concentrate. The word. In fact, the way people use the word concentration in the sense of the practice of uh, uh, Buddha Sasana is the way that we 
thought that we should operate when we were five and six and seven years old, when we were told to read and to concentrate on the letters of the alphabet. Mm. Okay. And that's what we wind up doing is that sort of concentration. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it does not lead to the state of the mind becoming unified. And in fact, in many ways, it keeps the mind um, scattered. In the sense that you ought to do this, but you're doing that. You ought to come back and do this and you're doing that. And so we wind up with an argument with ourselves. Mm -hmm. So this this concept of uh, sama area samati, we can think of, in fact, um, in in the suttas, there is actually an example that uh, uh, gives us an understanding of what it means. And the example in the suttas is of a yurt, a traveling tent in the old days. They still use them in uh, Mongolia. Mm -hmm. Do you know what a yurt is? I do, yes. Right. And the, one of the qualities of the yurt is, is that you've got a center place at the top of the yurt where all of the ridge poles meet together. Mm -hmm. That's the samati. That's what the word was originally used for. You can think of it as the top part of the gable. Mm. Okay. The house where things meet at the top, the, uh, the point where things come together. A really good example of it is a, uh, a Native American teepee mm -hmm. with the ridge poles all tied together at the top and then spread out at the bottom. And the, bo the base has great stability because every pole leads to and helps support each one of the poles. Okay, so this pole, you can stick it up and it fall down. You can put two of them, but it, they won't fall this way, but they'll fall that way. Mm. So the more poles that you put on it, the less likely that the wind is going to blow over the teepee. This is also what we recognize that, in fact, this teepee we're building has four primary poles. Mm. These are the ones we've been talking about, starting with right shati, right investigation, right effort, and right um, attitude. So when all, when all of those poles are together, then the mind is in samati. There's also a slightly different way of using the word samati, but in the same uh, definition. The way that we can use it here is, in fact, the reason why the jhanas are called samati is because they're gathering together factors, not because the mind is concentrated. Okay. All right. This is an important difference that the mind is not necessarily we're trying to concentrate the mind. What we're doing is gathering factors together that uh, lead to skill. Mm -hmm. So when we're practicing Anapanasati, by applying the Eightfold Noble Path to it, the actual uh, Anapanasati itself is and it's kind of amusing like this because it uh, it actually is bringing the factors of jhana together. That's what we're doing when we're practicing anapanasati. Uh, would you mind reminding me or redefining anapanasati? In in my notes, I see a recommendation to read anapanasati number one eighteen, which I uh, have not done yet, but I 
Could you just remind me okay. what that term means? All right. Well, let's go into that then for the moment. And that is Anapanasati means mindfulness or to watch or be engaged with a long, deep breath and to mindfully or understand or uh, control your breathing to the point that it's going to be a long, deep out breath. Okay. This yeah. is what the word anapanasati means. Anapana yeah. is just breathing, but anapanasati means mindfulness of breathing or breathing in a particular way. Uh, I'm curious because in, you know, I've never done a Vipassana retreat, but I've read texts on Vipassana and kind of one thing I see mentioned over and over is uh, you you kind of just want to observe the breath, but controlling isn't necessarily the, the focus. And I just want to make sure I'm understanding yes. correctly. Let's, You're saying let's something. Let's go correct. over that so that we can get. Thank you for asking that question. Yes. That in fact, uh, it's definitely in the suttas. It's definitely in uh, some of the talks that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa has had. It was definitely in my private conversations with him. And also recently in the past few years, I've seen it definitely in print of old Mahasi literature. But modern Mahasi practice in the West missed that point. That mm -hmm. in fact, in the sutta, uh, excuse me, the uh, the document that uh, that Mahasi Saladov wrote, uh, this this document, I forget the name of it, but it's in it's an appendix in the big book that is attributed to him. I, 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 it, it, his the Sayadaw like got got on insight, sort of the dry insight instructions that you're talking about. Right, exactly, and we'll talk about dry in just a moment. Mm. Um, but in in the original text that I'm talking about, the the Burmese was translated into fall upon, seize and confront. Now, the word fall upon here is the same kind of language that we would use in more modern times. We would say to jump on hmm. the way that a group of these would fall upon a victim. OK. okay. So this is the kind of thing that uh, Mahasi was saying, and yet they don't teach that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Goenka did not teach it. He just taught Anapana, but he did not teach the, uh, the actual kind of breathing that we're going to practice. Now, the kind of breathing that we're practicing, when I say long on the in-breath and long on the out-breath, that doesn't necessarily mean um, a forced breath or a heavy breath. But what we're doing is, is we're actually learning to breathe at ease. This is a long, deep, sigh, slow, easy, relaxed breath. And we can understand that because when we see in the sequence that the, uh, the fourth um, step uh, in, in the tetrad um of um the body kaya nipasana uh it's translated in a way that makes it suspicious and overblown and way out there by using the word tranquil tranquilize the body 
basically what we actually just mean is um, to uh, rest the body, to relax the body. That tranquilizing, in fact, every time I hear that word or mention it, I think about a, a, a lion being shot with a dark gun that's got tranquilized. And there that lion is, is just dead. He's dead meat. And the guys can go up and do anything they want to, put collars on him and whatever. And later he's really drowsy and out of it. That's what people get from, from tranquilized. Uh, but in fact, that they, they have pills called tranquilizers. Mm -hmm. to put you out of it. Well, we're not talking about any of that kind of stuff. That's fine. That's not something that was done in the time of the Buddha. So we've got a completely different understanding of the, of the concept. Uh, but the actual word in there has to do with being passive. Okay, to let the body become placid or passive or relaxed is another better mm -hmm word for it. And surprisingly enough, in some of the definitions of first jhana, relaxed body is one of the items that is listed mm. as one of the samadhi factors that need to be gathered together. And there you find it exactly there in the Anapanasati Sutta. Mm. It, okay, so um, the word um, Anapanasati does mean that we've actually got to take control of the breath. Now, at a, a logical position, you'd understand that if we are very, very lightly paying attention to the breath and have, let us say, no skin in the game, then it's very easy for the mind to wander away. Okay, the example would be watching someone else play a video game. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. That you're curious and interested in the pieces and whatnot like that, but you have some ignorance built in in the sense that you do not know the fine muscle movements of the mouse, nor you, do you know the logic behind why he clicked on this, that, or the other thing. All you can see is the result in action. Mm -hmm. And then the two of you, one who's playing the game, and the other one who is standing and watching, somebody calls. Maybe it's mom for both of them. It might be brothers. And she says, dinner time. The one who is watching is going to much more likely go to dinner, and the one who's playing the game is going to stay on it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Makes this sense. Is, this is the good enough rationale for why we're actually going to play this game in the sense of putting some skin in the game mm. that in fact everything has to do with putting some, some skin in the game and yet western buddhism seems to think that the teachings of the buddha are passive mm. okay that there's okay. no skin in the game you're just sort of sitting there waiting for it to happen and with that mentality a lot of people then will go for meditation 100 or 10 let us say 100 hours a thousand ten thousand hours 30,000 hours and they expect at some time that the common machine is going to walk into the meditation hall with his shakti pot and strike <laughs> the dude and he's going to have some happiness. Mm. He's paid his dues and it's time for the payoff. Right? Mm. He's put in his passive time in the classroom and he expects to get a good grade. 
If only it were that easy, right? Pardon? Said if only it were that easy. If it were that easy, I, I, I might not be here. But uh, you know, nothing ever is. Um. Well, actually, that's the way that most kids, or most, let us say, students, attend class. They sit there passively, expecting the teacher to just tell it all, and they let it in. And then exam come times, and what do they do? They study. <laughs> they study. They sweat. Sometimes they pull all-nighters. Then they walk into the exam not ready for an exam at all. It, it, it's funny that you use this as a metaphor because as my day job, um, I, I, I'm a tutor, and I tutor one specific exam, and students tend to study full-time for about three to four months for the exam. So a lot of, a lot of my job is really teaching them how to, how to study or how to learn how to be better students. I, it's an amusing. Uh, well, the, then what you're really teaching them is how to listen. That's that's uh, accurate. Yes. Okay. Well, that's exactly what we're going to practice doing. We're going to practice listening. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, in that way, you could say, well, wait a minute. Right, noble view is a viewing. That means to look well. Basically, we can say, okay, but an investigation does not necessarily mean only viewing. Mm -hmm. That it can also be listening, because in fact, uh, it's going to be really hard for someone to sit in front of a mirror to see their thoughts. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that we can begin to understand is that um, uh, we can think of it like this, that many times entire concepts or a sentence, say, that describes something as a thoughts only just one mind moment that may have just one word, but it has some intensity to it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, the example that I will use is the common example. You should be meditating or you ought to meditate. Now, to say that, that phrase, you ought to be meditating right now, is a long sentence with a whole lot of words in it. The mind flash would just be perhaps the word meditation or maybe just an image of you sitting someplace or maybe just the image of a statue that comes with the meaning you ought to be meditating. Mm -hmm. And so that ought to is what him hits or impacts. All right. And so uh, in that way, we can say that, yeah, this is an investigation of viewing, but that's not the only kind of thought that we have. We also have verbal thoughts, discursive mm -hmm. thoughts. We talk to ourselves. We also have kind of thoughts that are a dialogue in the sense that we have a discursive thought followed by a reaction to that discursive thought, which may be a mind moment, but it doesn't have any thought in mm -hmm. it. But in fact, uh, actual observation or actual listening doesn't require uh, verbal thinking. Okay. Okay. To really listen to something, the verbal information just comes in. It's when we start thinking about what the teacher was saying, is when we stop listening to what the teacher was saying, start listening to our internal dialogue instead. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, 
basically what we're going to do then is we're going to investigate the working of the mind mm -hmm. and eventually that will help us understand how the mind works or the process of the mind mm -hmm. because we're seeing it in operation in various places and stages and begin to put together that there's a connection in there there's actually a sequence of events or the way that the buddha would call it a um a cause and effect a series or a sequence of causes and effects mm -hmm. now this might be uh, a misguided question but a moment ago we were talking about uh anapanasati which was to be engaged with i'm still a talking about anapanasati uh, 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 okay I, I guess i'm just confused by the dichotomy between breathing and mindful process or cognitive processes all right. Um, well, the, it's it's a um, let us say one step at a time procedure. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, that the way that Goenka talks about it is stated this way: when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. Except that many people don't do that. Not only does the mind wander away, they just wander away to it. And now they're off the breath and they could happen for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And they're off. They're not watching the breath because they haven't remembered. But then they will remember. Mm -hmm. But it, when they remember that they're not breathing, they don't do the never mind start again. What do they do instead? Oh, poor me, this meditation is really hard and they're not even recognizing the kind of thoughts that they're having with that. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. I, I, so, I guess. Go ahead. So in order to actually practice Anapanasati, you're going to have to begin to watch your mind. Remember to look at what the mind is doing so that the mind can actually control the body. Mm -hmm. That by by learning to control the breathing, you have to learn to control the mind. That the mind, you're actually controlling the mind when you are controlling the breathing. And then surprise, surprise, when those two things working together become a skill, now that gives you the ability to start the skill of controlling the way that you feel. Mm -hmm. Okay, that that makes sense. And uh, yeah. I've been meditating somewhat regularly, I'd say on and off, but more on than off for about a decade. Uh, but pretty much the extent of my practice has been focus on my breath. When I notice that my mind has taken over and I'm thinking, recognize that and return to the breath. Uh, and that has pretty much been um, my practice for a while. I don't know if I've made any progress, but as I mentioned in our last meeting, uh, if I'm, you don't think or you don't know if you've made any progress then no. All right, fair enough. I, I have there's many different examples of that, mm -hmm. and that is like uh, copying a large file or a whole group of large files and mm -hmm. on windows and you see that bar moving of, of the completion. And then you're looking at it, did it move, did it move, did it move? <laughs> if you have to look at it closely and check, did it move? It's not moving. 
Mm-hmm. Got it. Well, you know, I, I, I would say I've experienced periods where the quality of meditation has felt improved, but I don't want to make any uh, arrogant well, claims. You know it, and you know that. That's the point, and you know that. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is this is actually what we're building up of Sama Sankapa is to begin to know what you're looking at because you've looked at it and seen it and you see it again and you recognize it and you know it. Mm-hmm. This is the quality that we're beginning to develop. Very slowly. Pardon? Was the, the word used Sama Sankalpa? Yes. Okay. Uh, that That is often in English translated as to right thought or it's also translated as right intention. But the better English language uh, word translated to, because it gives more of an oomph and an understanding, is right attitude. Okay. Okay, but Sama Sankapa is the right attitude. Now, the important point about that on a, just to, on, in passing, is, is that your attitude affects the thoughts that you're having. When you're having thoughts, your attitude in other words, when you're angry, you have different kind of thoughts than when you're loving. Okay. That just shows it right there. So attitude will be the underlying thing that happens with the uh, the momentary thought that we have. Got it. So, which means that if we start changing this momentary thought that came from that old attitude, and we keep changing that over and over and over again, and start to brighten the mind, gladden the mind, put some uh, skin in the game, brighten things up over and over again, that begins then to modify the, the attitude. Because in fact, the right attitude and the right thoughts are the attitudes and the thoughts that I just showed you showed that the, that the attitude affects the thoughts. The thoughts that we have affect our attitude also. Certainly, and I, I very much appreciated uh, our discussion last week about uh, recognizing what is and is not quote unquote wholesome as a loose translation and taking the right effort to root out what is unwholesome and replace it with something more valuable. And I found that um, incredibly valuable because I, I am prone to cynical nihilistic thinking, uh, though it had you never were taught that. That's not a prone. If there's anything that's prone, it's that you can think. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. you think, you learned. Fair enough. Fair enough. So that conversation right there uh, had a significant impact on just my relationship with myself uh, out off the cushion, I guess, so to speak. Right. You do recognize then uh, by by beginning to practice that you have been kind of in the habit of being critical of yourself. That you yourself don't match up to any particular standard that you can think of in the particular moment. Mm -hmm. All right, that's Samus, that's uh, uh, ordinary Sankapa, that's the attitude. Mm -hmm. We develop the attitude of being a a loser naturally. (laughs) And when I say loser, I'm saying it in a kind of a light way. I had mm-hmm. one student take offense at that. She thought that uh, I was calling her a loser. Like untaken, I was. untaken. Okay. Um, 
that another way of talking about it is a, is a victim or another way of, of using uh, the whole concept is, is that we can say that when we were born, we're vulnerable. Mm. Okay, and that the correct process of, um, uh, let us say, growing up out of that vulnerability, that's what we would call a full adult who mm-hmm. is strong and capable and sure of what he's doing and whatnot like that, and he's no longer in a vulnerable place. But yet in our society, people grow up into adulthood uh, missing many things uh, that we wind up continuing. In other words, we never really have a time when we transition from uh, childhood to adulthood. Uh, and that in some cultures they do. Uh, it's normally referred to as a rite of passage. This was what the original Bar Mitzvah and Bar Mitzvahs were all about. Now they've become just an intellectual test or something for the child to take. But that's what's happened also. Uh, an example of that would be uh, graduating from high school or maybe graduating from college or maybe getting married, or maybe joining the army. These are the kinds of things that are great big life-changing kinds of things, but they're not necessarily a rite of passage to where when you, after you go through this ceremony, you feel whole and complete now. Mm. And because we don't go through a rite of passage, or another way we can talk about that rite of passage is in two different languages. One is in you must be reborn or born again. This time out of being the victim or the one vulnerable into a champion. Mm-hmm. Also within Buddhism, we call it a, a change of lineage. That your your past or your history or uh, the people that were in your childhood were ordinary and now you are growing up into being an adult you've got you are of a different lineage now you're of the lineage of the buddha not of the lineage of a mom and pop Mm -hmm. okay so this is all the rite of passage it is the uh growing up it is the uh being reborn it is the uh change of lineage that we're talking about in this Sama Sankapa, it's mm-hmm. changing our attitude about the way we deal with ourselves in the world. Okay. And that the way and the, and the change uh, is going to be built upon satisfaction leading into um, success. Mm-hmm. Okay, so success is the operative word. Okay. Because that's in fact what we do in our whole lives is we're out actually looking for a win. We're looking for a success. An example of that would be why would someone train and enter the Olympics and then train some more and then go to the Olympics and train some more only to win, uh, only to run a hundred yard dash, and there's going to be 50 guys in that race, and only one of them is going to win. Mm-hmm. And now it's you that's won that race. How do you feel? 
hopefully fulfilled, but you know, that's, that's r- rarely the, the actual case, or maybe you feel, it's, well, let us say in that moment of the winning mm-hmm. between the time that you stepped over the line or let us say in that time, when you are so close to the line that only a few more steps are going to be there. And you know, you've won that race starting at that moment. What happens with the arms of the guy who's winning that race and he knows he's winning that race? What touches the ribbon first? It's going to be his chest because his arms are in the air. Exactly. How do you feel now with that? Elated, uh, complete, successful, whole, I guess. And, and that's the reason that he, that feeling that he gets is the reason that he went to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And, and and sometimes he wins and he feels that, and sometimes he wins and it's not so much. But anyway, that feeling is short term. Mm-hmm. And yep. it's very, yes. very hard one and rare. Yes, it is. Don't I know it? <laughs> okay. But the whole teaching of the Buddha has to do with you can feel the way that you want to feel. Why don't you feel like an Olympic champion right now? Because that Olympic champion felt that way on the inside. He just used the winning of the race as an excuse to feel good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now there's a bunch of people in the stands who were cheering for him because they were from his country or some other relationship, tribalism and all of that. And so some people are identifying with him as their favorite runner. Mm -hmm. When he wins the race, how do they feel and what do they do? They share in their success, feel a whole. Precisely. So they cheer also. Mm -hmm. Okay, they cheer and they stomp and they laughed and they and they raise their arms. And then after they do that, a second or two later, they may sit down with a great big sigh of relief. They may hug each other. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're looking at now the relationship between Pitti and Sukha. Okay. And both Pitti and Sukha are uh, um, skills to be developed. As for the Anapanasati Sutta, but in fact, these are step, uh, we call them steps, they're not actually steps, they're just items on the list that does not have a particular arrangement. Okay, and Pitti is that P-I-T-H-I? Uh, I think that it's just P-I-T-I. Okay. Want to be able to you know, re- read read up outside our discussions. Right. Thank you. Sometimes Pitti and Sukha are separated, and sometimes they're put right together. Mm-hmm. And that it's uh, a, a kind of an important point that sometimes the translators will only use one of the words rather than both of them when they're both in the suttas. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there, but there is this thing called Pitti Sukha, which has various qualities to it. In fact, let me give them to you. The first and most foundational one, surprise, surprise, seems to be really big time, but it's actually the most fundamental, and that is to feel safe and secure, that you do not feel like that there is an emergency going on, and a lot of students will report that they feel anxiety and uptightness and agitation and that kind of thing which the agitation then would be the same thing as the relaxation, but also 
they don't feel safe and secure. The safety and security is going to be after they get something done. In other words, you have to go do this. You feel unsafe, and instead of just feeling safe, you go get a weapon, or you go do what you were told, or you go do something. You go build a fort or something, and then you can feel safe. Unfortunately, yeah. generally after the fort building, we still don't feel safe. I'm, I'm only laughing because of how relatable this is. Well, this is the human mind. Mm. You've got one. Congratulations. It's a marvelous toy to play with. A blessing and a curse. <laughs> so. This whole thing about being uh secure because the poly word is um via for fear and abaya is the fear for uh is the word for not fear uh it's natural to translate that word as fearless or fearlessness mm-hmm. except that fearlessness in english language always has to do with great courage and warriors and great big stuff like that. That in fact, if the warrior who was fearless actually felt safe and secure, he probably wouldn't be going into battle. Mm. Those are not not the warriors you want on your team, I guess. (laughs) Probably wouldn't be too fierce. So, we, uh, if we understand it, then is, is that we can actually talk ourselves into everything is okay right now. Everything's fine. There's no worries. I can feel relaxed, mm-hmm. and that relaxation has also that quality of being secure, feeling of safety. So it's actually good for us to talk ourselves into feeling safe. We can muse around it when we feel a little insecure or unsafe. We can say, you know, there's no calicators, there's no crocodiles, there's no bear, there's no white team banging on the door. I can actually feel safe right now because I'm not actually in physical danger. You see that fear mechanism, the fear mechanism is an instinct that kept us from real danger. Mm-hmm. But because of the society that we're living in, because we are uh, still vulnerable in the sense that we haven't grown up and become full adults that are, in fact, feeling safe and secure, we still feel vulnerable. And where, in fact, there's no reason to feel vulnerable. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to feel insecure. There's no reason to feel uptight or anxious or have anxiety or any of that. But it's there because we're in the habit of it. A way of talking about it is, is that we have a lot of false positives. We become afraid of things that are not really fearful at all. Mm-hmm. An example of that would be when the, when the uh, student in class is asked a question by the teacher. If he has fear, he's going to choke. And kids often do. Mm-hmm. Then the other kids laugh and he gets even more afraid. And now he can't even think. Yeah, because, mm-hmm. because when we were afraid, we don't think very well. Yeah, because the body is preparing us for fight or flight. And so all the also, blood, so blood rushes right out of the head when we're afraid. Mm-hmm. But when we're fa- safe and secure, 
then we can begin to think more normally. Uh, normally. An another way of saying it is, is that we have various parts of the brain and each part of the brain needs a blood and oxygen and, and nourishment and also has to have the discharge of the junk taken out afterwards, which would normally be carbon dioxide and some other uh, things. Uh, all right. But each part of the brain um, has a different job to do. And because of that, it takes a different amount of energy or effort. The reptilian brain was what was developed first, and that one is on all the time. When we go to sleep, we, the heart still beats. When we go to sleep, the stomach will still digest any food. Then, in fact, sometimes people will have to wake up in the night to go to the toilet because the body has been digesting food during the night. It doesn't mm -hmm. stop doing that. We also continue to breathe. And so that we also, while we're laying in bed, continue to move around. So the body is attached to this part of the brain and the brainstem, this back part, this anterior cortex is also the seat of all of our instincts. Mm -hmm. So it's actually easier in the sense of less effort to let the instinctual mind operate that is quite efficient. Mm -hmm. We can think of that as almost like an automatic pilot on an airliner so that the, uh, the actual captain can go take a nap. Makes sense. You probably, yeah, you probably, you probably heard that uh, humans use only 10% of their their brain or only 10% of their mind. That's an old cliche out of the 1950s. So a little, little misguided, but you know, I've, I've certainly heard it. Okay, well, more than likely what's going on is that from time to time we use all of our faculty. Mm. But that's only about 10% of the time. The rest of the time we all we operate on automatic pilot. An example of that is when people are driving a car, they will often drive on uh, on automatic pilot while they're on the phone or thinking about something else, eating food, yelling at the kids, anything like that. But they're not paying attention to the driving. And that's why humans have automobile accidents mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because they're literally not watching where they're going. OK. They don't watch where they're going because they're operating the car from that reptilian part of the brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then there is the midsection, which is also called the temporal lobe and also called the mammalian brain. And this is the place where it has all of the dialogue or all of the verbal talk that we have inside the mind. That's where we form sentences and form um, uh, let us say, store, retrieve, and then form uh, concepts. Mm -hmm. And sometimes these are very fast visual things, and sometimes they're the same thing repeated over and over again. And sometimes it's a story that we tell ourselves. I mean, we can actually tell a story and write an old, a long email just by uh, talking to ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, yep. and this takes more effort and more energy and this is part of the reason why we sleep at night is to just let everything hang out so that the reptilian part of the brain can just take over and do all the repairs and everything like that because it's going to function all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that even if you drown and the lungs stop working and the heart stops working, 
the reptilian brain is the last thing to die. That's the way that the humanity is set up. Makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. So we also now have the frontal cortex. That's the wisdom part of the brain that in fact, um, the Buddha had two different words for it. One was chitta and or sita and that uh, chitta nupasana or actually just chitta means that part of the reptilian brain that has emotions and thoughts and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Then there's the higher part of the brain that is uh, referred to as manut. Manut. That's manut, that's... which gives the word man, which now we're going in the direction of human. There's a human part of the brain, but the human part of the brain requires a lot of oxygen and a lot of uh, calories to burn. Mm -hmm. And so okay. it's only operating some of the time and some of the time it's not. Got it. Um, just quick comment. So you said chits. Chitta, uh -huh. um, like frontal lobe mind stuff, you know, and in, in, when I was studying uh, Advaita texts, something that kept coming up was Sat Chit Ananda. Uh, mm -hmm. I was wondering if they were etymologically related. Or yes, that's the same word. That Chitta is actually the mind, but it is the part of the mind that needs to be investigated and learned to, uh, to control it or the skill part of it. But in order to do that, that means that we have to use the higher mind, the Manute, in order to do that. Mm -hmm. That now, instead of thinking about the computer and thinking about the car and, and doing code and that kind of stuff, we're going to turn that higher level of uh, mind, that pattern matching mechanism that we have, and start putting it onto the verbal, uh, the mammalian part of the brain, and also working on the functions of the, um, uh, the reptilian mind. Mm -hmm. Now, um, this these kind of mind uh, parts that I'm talking about is actually quite rudimentary neuroscience. Mm -hmm. The Buddha knew about all of these things, but he didn't talk about it in that language because he investigated the mind by sitting and, and watching and looking and listening and investigating we're in the West, we've done that with a knife. Mm -hmm. we've, we've done it with a scalpel and we've cut brains open and, and, and been on a, um, a kind of a hunt for what is the human mind by looking at it structurally. And the structures actually quite well map to the functions simply because of evolution. Evolution caused that, that this function happened first and then we were uh, snakes and alligators and then this next function happened and we became mammals all the way up into apes and then into the apes and into humans. We have this third part of the brain, which is right up front. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. But, but, uh, if, uh, and so this is the part of the brain then that we're going to put in gear. So sati in investigation means that we're actually going to be using this higher part of the mind to investigate what's going on in the reptilian part of the mind, the feelings, and in this discursive talk that is coming out of the, uh, uh, the mammalian mind or the uh, verbal or mm -hmm. the what they call the temporal cortex, this part from around here as opposed to the 
prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. And we don't really need to get into too much the anatomy of the human brain, but there's some very interesting things in there. Well, I, uh, I, are, I know I, uh, I studied neuro. I actually worked in a neuro lab for a while. Okay, so you know what I mean by the amygdala and where it sits. I do. Okay, would you believe that that part of the brain, it's the amygdala and that part of the brain that is closest to the, uh, let us say, the windpipe. So mm -hmm. as we're breathing in, we're, the way that we breathe can actually have effect upon the amygdala. That mm -hmm. in fact, sense. our breathing does affect the amygdala that is wired that way. And a lot of people don't understand that, that relationship. And you also know that the amygdala is the source of fear. Fear, yeah. Mm -hmm. That it shirts out chemicals and we call that fear. But all it's doing is its job of putting out chemicals. And so basically what that means is, is that we need to have some sort of mechanism with the higher brain to, to uh, let us say, uh, soothe the savage beast of the amygdala. Okay. So this is, this is the practice. In a, pardon? Not, nothing. I was just saying, hey, that sounds good to me. I've been trying to figure that one out for a while. All right. So as we sit and breathe uh, uh, mindfully, we are keeping that front part of the brain engaged. So let's now look at a particular breath cycle, just one particular breath cycle. As we're practicing long, slow, deep breathing, we begin to slow the breathing down. Most people breathe, they say, I have not ever met anybody. I mean, I haven't done my own surveys. Um, but the uh, uh, most people, they say, breathe at about 20 breaths a minute. That seems absolutely exactly. high because at 20, that's, that's an, an in-breath of a second and a half and an out-breath of a second and a half. I think most people breathe slower than that, maybe down to about uh, 10 breaths a minute, which would then be three, uh, three seconds on an in-breath and three seconds on an out-breath. But we're going to slow it down a bit more than that. And one of the ways that we think about would be like a count of four, four, two. Not that I'm teaching you to count, but I'm giving you an idea of start to look at the kind of breathing that you're doing. So we slow the breathing down and by slowing it down, we also take in a bit more oxygen than we used to. That when people are breathing very shallowly, you could say that they're breathing between 40 and 60%. Mm -hmm. On the out breath, all they let out, they're down to 60, uh, down to 40%. But when they breathe in, they don't really fill up. They're only breathing up to about 60%. So there's a lot of garbage left in there. If mm -hmm. we change that ratio to 80, 30, just a little bit more, just a little bit more of an in breath and just a little bit more of an out breath so that we can get it down to, uh, let us say, the count of four, four, two means four on the in-breath, four on the out-breath, and two, that means that's 10 seconds or so, which means now our breathing is down to about six breaths a minute. Mm -hmm. This is a good resting place to get started. Okay. 
Okay. And in that 10 seconds of an in-breath and an out-breath, a whole lot of stuff can happen. Mm. In 10 seconds, if we said that a mind moment lasted one-tenth of a second, then 10 seconds is enough for 100 mind moments. That's a lot of time going on there if we're using the, the, our time wisely. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're intending to learn to do, is to learn to use our, our time mind, uh, wisely or mindfully. And in that regard, taking a long, deep breath just has needs the mindfulness of maybe one mind moment on an in-breath and one mind moment on an out-breath, and that is the intention that this is going to be a long, deep in-breath. It can happen at the beginning of the breath, and then you continue with that breath. But in the process of taking the long, deep breath, that means that we can also feel or experience the body breathing. We can feel the touch of the cloth. We can feel all kinds of things that are happening with that breathing when we start paying attention to the body. But we're, we're doing this for two reasons now. Step one and two of Anapanasati is the long and the short breath. I generally don't teach the students the short breath because it's not really all of that necessary, but it can be of value on occasions. Mm. But then the third step of Anapanasati is to experience the body. Well, how and when do we do that? When we're breathing in long, we can experience the body. We can experience it breathing. Mm -hmm. And as we breathe out, we can experience the body as, as we're breathing. This becomes a skill now, the skill of uh, experiencing and looking at the body while we're breathing. That's some of the mind moments. Also, during that 10 seconds, we're going to have some discursive thoughts. Okay. We can't help but it because you people have learned to control their mind well enough. So we're going to, in fact, not try to control it too much, but just a little bit of corralling it. Imagine this, that you've got an animal that's out in the wild. Mm. The first thing that the horse trader try to do is they try to get the wild horses into a canyon, right? You got to get them into a box canyon. That's what they try to uh, put the horses, chase them into the to the canyon. Or we could call that maybe a pasture. And then a smaller place would be a corral. And then a smaller place would be a stall. And now we've got something that we can actually work with that horse. Or uh, in my uh, early childhood past, watching them uh, uh, castrate a, a bull. You cannot castrate a bull when it's in the wild. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've, I've never tried, but I might have made an educated guess. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, you've got to get that thing down. So this is also what we're going to be doing with the mind, that normally the human mind is wild in the sense that it's just all over the place. It can go anywhere. Mm. So we're going, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to start corralling it which means we're going to corral it into wholesome thoughts. We're going to start having those thoughts become wholesome rather than having it all over the place, because in fact, if it's all over the place, then there's definitely places that are dangerous. Mm -hmm. There are definitely places that we would not want to go with our thoughts. 
that mm-hmm. we in fact want to allow the mind to stay secluded from the unwholesome. And so this is the, 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 the training of the Buddha. The Buddha gives an example of that uh, that I'll tell you about next time. We don't have much more time. This has been a while. So um, we'll talk more about the, uh, the, the effort of getting the unwholesome thoughts out. But once we do, that's the right effort is to remove unwholesome thoughts. So in that regard, just like in the Mahasi method of falling upon the breath, seizing the breath or confronting the breath, we also, in, and in fact, he stated this in this literature, is, is that whatever object of meditation that we have, we're going to actually seize it, jump on it, confront it, mm-hmm. all right? But in this regard, with Anapanasati, the actual object of meditation now is going to be moving around. Okay. So when we go to a new object of meditation, we're going to go to it with gusto. Mm-hmm. We're going to seize that thought and change it from an unwholesome thought into a wholesome thought while we're seizing the breath and making the breath long and slow and relaxed leading to relaxation. So we're relaxing the body and we're keeping the mind in a wholesome state. And by doing that, the um, the right effort then begins to produce, especially if the kind of thoughts that we're having are thoughts of safety, you're going to begin to feel safe. If you're having thoughts of being comfortable, then you're going to be feeling comfortable. All right. Now, let's stop about that word comfortable for just a moment. Many, many people think that uh, learning to meditate is an endurance practice. The longer you sit, the better meditator you are and things like this, which means that uh, many of the students then are going to be practicing beyond their comfort zone and stay un- and begin to get uncomfortable. The legs hurt, the knees hurt, the back hurts. That, when you're uncomfortable, that's not satisfying. Mm-hmm. And comfort is one of the things that we're looking for because comfort is going to take the body into a state of relaxation and ease. And it's not easy to be at ease when the body is in pain. It's not comfortable. So we need to make sure that when we're practicing, we're practicing to let the body be comfortable so that the, you can feel comfortable. So that that is a one thing I, I had a question about just because I, I mean, most people have something going on, head, neck, shoulders, back, whatever. I have a shoulder injury and I kind of always have to feel like I have to move around or I, I just get an urge in my body to like stretch it a little bit. And I'm not sure if I should focus on stillness and trying to get through that that compulsion or if I should just continue to try to find the most comfortable position by moving and making small adjustments. I'm not really sure well, what the process that, that works. If, if that works, then that's all you need to do. But in fact, there's a sequence of events. Um, the Buddha gives a sequence of events for drowsiness and other things like this. But normally, we don't have to go up to the last resort. Hmm. 
some reason, the Westerners are like that. We're very bottom line oriented. We want to go to the last item on the list. When in fact, with Pali and in other languages and systems, the most important thing is at the top of the list, not at the last, at the end of the list. We don't ever go for bottom line. We go for the top line. What's the first thing that we're going to do? Because if we don't have the first thing, I don't care what the bottom line is. Okay. So there are many things that we can do. And the first thing that you can do is to just straighten up. Mm -hmm. You can also adjust your posture and other things like that. But if it doesn't work, then the next thing to do is to stand up. Mm -hmm. And maybe even walking it off. But in fact, what I just said is exactly the instructions that we give at what so and more. Mm -hmm. And also the students there are not required to sit for long periods of time that the normal sitting is 30 minutes, but even in 30 minutes, it's okay to stand if you don't feel comfortable. And it's okay to go out and walk in the yard if that's what you need to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. Got it. So this issue of comfort is important. Because if you're not comfortable, then how can you become satisfied? Yeah, definitely. And I've I've spent a lot of time on the cushion just focusing on my posture, trying to make my posture my object of meditation. That's not something if I if I knew that was useful or helpful or valuable at all. No, I but don't it was think so. It's actually a hindrance. Mm -hmm. And so you a better it. practice is to practice so that we're comfortable, so that that way, then the language that we're having and the thoughts that we have can now be comfortable. Because when the body is uncomfortable, guess what kind of thoughts you're going to be having? Thoughts of avoidance. Thoughts mm -hmm. of, I want to get out of this. I want to move. I want to do something. But right now, I'm unsatisfied. And we have thoughts about that. All right. But when we begin to get satisfied, uh, in the sense of being comfortable, then we can begin to have satisfying thoughts too. And that's exactly what we're intending to do. That in fact, in um, this is, I, I'm so surprised that, um, that, that it ever developed that way. This idea of dry meditation. Let me talk about this for just a moment. In the time of the Buddha, there was no concept of wet and dry. Mm -hmm. Also, in the time of the Buddha, there was no concept between Samatha and Vipassana. In fact, the whole uh, duality, the, dual, the dualness in there never existed in the time of the Buddha. It was only later that it began to show up in the suttas. But when it showed up in the suttas, it was not a neither or ever. It was always a both. Mm -hmm. And yet in Western practice, we think that they're one or, or the other. Okay. But in the teachings of the Buddha, it is definitely both. Mm -hmm. uh, and that when it is one or the other, and they choose the other of Vipassana, then that's what they call the dry practice. And what that means is, is that the, the mind is not yet settled. It's not yet comfortable and satisfied. It's dry. It is not juicy. It is dry, and that's the dry practice, and that's the dry practice that eventually leads someone into the dark night of the soul if they work hard enough at it. 
if they are if they work really hard at being miserable, they can get them to downright miserable. Mm -hmm. Which I think is step seven of the 16 stages of Anapanasati. <laughs> uh, so um the throughout the suttas there is a number of occasions i can name you at least 10 suttas that have the hindrances mentioned and in every case it's that they are to be removed and that's the first job the first job is to remove the hindrances mm -hmm. that's true in the satipatthana sutta it is true in uh, in the reference of the 117, the great 40 of using one's right effort to make the thoughts wholesome. The hindrances are mentioned in number 39 or in uh, just all over the place. And yet, for some reason in Western Buddhism, that important point has never been made as the number one top line first thing to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, in one eleven, it talks about Sariputta's path, and the first item on the list was quite secluded from unwholesome thoughts. Mm -hmm. He entered into first jhana. Okay, so that is in fact the number one item on the list of jhanas is, is to come out of unwholesome thoughts and gladden the mind, come out of the hindrances, come out of the doubt, come out of the restless mind, come out of wanting things, come out of being dissatisfied with your posture and other things, that all of those things are hindrances and start gladdening the mind or brightening the mind, encouraging the mind or putting uh, comforting words or beginning to have nourishing words in the mind rather than having the critical uh, so you can think of in the hindrances is critical thinking. Mm. Balling things over, worrying about them, uh, writing an email in the mind a hundred times without actually writing the email. Mm -hmm. And this is the first thing that has to be removed. Once we have the hindrances removed, now we can do something. So when right. that statement never mind starts again that thought never mind start again is actually the removal of the hindrances another example of that would be aha i see you mara or aha i see all of that mm -hmm. another one is wow i don't have to do that right now wow i don't have to think about that email right now mm -hmm. Wow, I don't have to do anything right now. That wow is what we're talking about. That's the gladdening of the mind, and it's also taking it out of the unwholesome, out of the hindrances, and putting us in here now. Mm -hmm. And it's also taking us out of discursive thought. This undirected and starting to put it as directed thought. Mm -hmm. So we direct the thought, and when we do that, we direct it into these skills that we want to develop, the skill of feeling safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. And when we practice safety and security and comfort and satisfaction over and over and over again, we begin to get the attitude, I can do this, the success. When you are successful over and over and over again of, of, of removing the hindrances and putting wholesome thought in the mind over and over again, 
you begin to notice that you can do that. Mm-hmm. A lot of students never get to uh, never get in touch with the fact that you actually can control what's going to be in your mind. That most people think I am my thoughts. Which means that whatever thoughts are there, that's who I am. We identify with the thoughts. We think that I am the thoughts or that the thought means that if it's my thought, it must be a good thought. <laughs> uh, I do not harbor such notions. <laughs> so. Now we're recognizing, no, I am not the thoughts. Mm-hmm. I am, I'm not even the observer that's observing the thoughts. Hmm. Don't, don't quite know who I am. Let's stay open to that question. That's in fact, we begin to understand that that's an irrelevant question of hmm. who am I. But the first thing is take away the delusion that I am my feelings and I am my thoughts. A lot of people also identify with the body. I am this body. Look at how many businesses and industries operate because of people identify with the body. The cosmetic industry, the clothing industry, the shoe industry, the hat industry. I mean, how many hats are built for function? Uh, How many MAGA hats are worn because they want a hat? None. They're always worn for a reason, okay? Mm -hmm. I, I am this MAGA hat. (laughs) Uh, We also have other things like uh, uh, sports and entertainment that people engage in. I am this basketball. Other people uh, will go to the medical people. I am this body that's sick and I need a doctor to help me. mm -hmm. And so now we begin to say, wait a minute. It looks like that all of society is built upon this delusion of I am this and I am that. And none of us are then just sitting in comfortable because we keep identifying with I am angry instead of recognizing, oh, I see the anger. Mm. I see you anger. It's not mm. that I am angry, it's that I am separated from the anger. Before I am angry. Now, aha, I see you anger. Mm. That's the, the, the change. This is the wake up. This is the gladdening of the mind is to take a look and investigate what the mind is doing and then change it. Mm-hmm. But we have to put some skin in the game. We have to fall upon this mind and seize it and grab it and put the contents into it that we want. Just like we're seizing the breath and trying to taking the kind of breath that we want. Once we practice that and begin to get that feeling of safety and security and comfort and uh, satisfaction with it, we also start to develop the the feeling of success, the feeling Mm -hmm. I can do this. That skill when it is developed is the feeling of the champion that wins that gold medal at the point of time of getting that gold medal of, wow, this is so nice. Wow, I did it. And you can have that kind of feeling any time that you want to. You can do that just because you're capable of feeling like a champion. Mm-hmm. But you have Definitely. been taught and learned and practiced being uh, vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And then we continue to be vulnerable to our own thoughts that are really 
just in the wild someplace. But if when we corral the thoughts and put them into a wholesome pasture or a wholesome um, uh, corral, now with the mind in that wholesome state, we can become relaxed. It's safe in there. We can feel secure. We can feel comfortable. We feel satisfied. Mm -hmm. All right. So this is the practice of Anapanasati. And when we get that championship feeling, that's then the pity that's added to the sukha. Mm -hmm. And now we have, uh, we're on the, the road, or actually we're already getting onto the, all of the jhana factors. The only one that's left in, in mentioning is what, something we've already talked about that. And that is apply and sustain thought in the sense of applying the mind to the wholesome and then sustaining that and continuing in the wholesome and continuing in the wholesome. When we can apply and sustain the mind in the wholesome so that everything that we think of and everything that we see is wholesome, that means that the mind is in first jhana and it means that the mind is fit for work. And it also means that we're relaxed and sharp and fit, and we can watch what's going on. And now is the time that we start to get really, really juicy. We don't start off doing coding dry. We start doing mm -hmm. it really juicy, championship kind of way. And you, you would call that samata in opposition or? Maybe not in well, opposition the to the samatha actually just means rest or at peace. It's okay. associated with the word tranquility, and there's a twin pair of words, samatha and pasa, mm -hmm. which which comes our word then out of that Indo-European tradition would be passive. Mm. Okay. Um, so Got that's it. what the mouth means. It means getting the mind completely relaxed. So when your mind is relaxed, that's the jhana. So samatha is associated with jhana and mm -hmm. dry is associated with the ordinary mind. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. Yeah, a moment ago you were talking about how there used to not be the dichotomy between samatha and vipassana and vipassana alone can lead to uh, like as the actual soul. teaching of the Buddha started to rot and they got pretty foul smelling rotting by fifth, by the fifth century AD mm -hmm. and by mm -hmm. about the fifth century AD, about 450 AD, that time frame was also the birth of Tantra. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. Tantra went off, Buddhism went off in the, into uh, the spirit power realms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and which is kind mm -hmm. of unwholesome. Got it. And, okay. Yeah. And, and so ever since that time, uh, many people who are uh, hoping to and intending on practicing the teaching of the Buddha wind up practicing something else that is disguised as Buddhism. But it's like the uh, I, I'd like to think of it as kind of a jigsaw puzzle with a couple of pieces gone. <laughs> And and so the two pieces, uh, the first thing is this issue of right effort. That's what's missing. Mm -hmm. hmm. But in fact, that winds up being eventually step 11 of these of the 16 stages of insight. OK, where effort is first used. 
Wow. All right. Interesting. Interesting to put it so far down the list, but uh, well, I don't know. Uh, that's because that's the dry practice. That's not the uh, practice recommended by the Buddha. Mm-hmm. OK, and it comes from paying too much attention to things like look at what you're doing. So the insight just node and node and node and node and node. But the whole quality of look at what you're doing is said with that emphasis. Look at what you're doing, which means when you do look at what you're doing, you're going to make a big change. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that 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 makes sense. Uh, certainly, you know, I've practiced some noting and I definitely got the feeling, like, you know, where am I supposed to be going with this? Well, you're supposed to note those hindrances so that you can throw them out. <laughs> And we do that immediately. That's the very first thing that we do, not the last. Mm-hmm. First thing that we do is by practicing the Eightfold Noble Path, the first thing that we're going to find in the mind when we begin to investigate it is we're going to find hindrances. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to remove those hindrances. Once we find that uh, now, and it's actually listed in several different suttas, including in the Satipatthana Sutta, of what we actually do with that first jhana. Because the Buddha, when he was a child, was able to do the first jhana. He just didn't know at that time what to do with it. Hmm. Interesting. So that's where we're going with this is, is that we need to get the mind fit for work. And then hmm. we're going to figure out what the job is. Got it. Okay. So Thank that's you. where I'm going to leave you today is your your job is, is to get the mind fit for work. All right. And we'll talk And we'll talk more about that next time. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Again, I want to extend my gratitude. And it sounds like you have another student waiting. So I will uh, bid you adieu. And I'll speak soon. (laughs) Have a great day. Thank you. Well, Connor, um, yes, I I wish you well. Uh, Practice um, easily and happily. Thank you. you. Um, And just to kind of follow up. At the end of our last session, you said roughly every five to seven days you find to be uh, something like that, Mm -hmm. something like that. Okay, great. Well, my life has settled down uh, a bit in the last two to three weeks, and I believe I'll be able to see you again much more sooner. Thank you. Okay, well, we'll see you later then. This has been a nice conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I've watched your responses and you're 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 getting what I'm talking about. And I like that. I hope so. I hope so. I'm, I'm ta- taking notes on it, trying to be, trying to be a good listener. All right. Farewell. Talk soon. Be well. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.